Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome back, gang. And if you are listening today after last week's episode, I want to congratulate you because that means you are officially a theological keener. That's right. You are officially a theology nerd, and I love it. You know, last week I announced that we were going to do a series on the five points of Calvinism, and rather than hit that unsubscribe button from the Clearer Thinking podcast right away, you decided to tune in one more time, and that is terrific. So I say, welcome to our series, Calvinism for Cool Kids. That's the title. And by the way, I want to say thanks to Kate for coming up with that title. She is super creative, you know, about that kind of thing. And in fact, you know, if you've ever really liked a sermon title or uh, a clearer thinking podcast title at all, it's probably one that she came up with. So props to Kate for the title. We're going to dive right in to our topic for today, and I want to start by asking a question. Do you think that people are born basically good basically bad, or are they born morally neutral? What do you think? Are we basically good, basically bad, or basically neutral? Now, listen, that word basically is pretty important, okay? I mean, I'm not asking if you think people are capable of doing bad things. Everyone pretty much believes that. People do bad things all the time, right? Nobody disputes that. The question, though, is why? Why do people do bad things? Why do they lie? Why do they steal? Why do they murder? Why are kids sometimes so incredibly cruel to one another? Or why do spouses cheat on each other? See, your answer to that question, why do people do bad, bad things, will actually be determined by your answer to the first question I asked. Are people born basically good or basically bad or basically neutral? The word basic is important because it gets at the idea of what lies at the essence of human nature, at its core, at its most fundamental. Are people at their core generally good, basically good, or are they bad? Now, Calvinists believe that the Bible teaches that human beings are born actually basically bad. That is, We are inclined toward evil. And one of the ways you can define that evil is is we are turned in on ourselves. We are fundamentally self-centered. And so our basic moral orientation, according to the Bible, is corrupt. For example, Psalm 51, King David, okay? King David, he says in Psalm 51... Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. David says there that that before he was even born, before he had done anything good or anything bad, before he even understood moral categories at all, he was morally corrupt. He was born bad. Now this is commonly referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. I'm going to get back to that term in a minute because I think it, it can actually be a little bit misleading. But let me just say this first. Uh, 
If you want to be countercultural, tell your secular friend that you believe people are born evil. <laughs> tell them that we are corrupt, that human beings are fundamentally bad. Actually, you don't even have to go to a secularist. You can go to a lot of Christians and say that, and you will be culturally out of touch, okay? I used to teach Bible to high school students. And one of the things I used to do is I would ask my class that question, are people basically born good or bad or neutral? And the answer was always split. But the least popular answer was always human beings are born fundamentally or basically bad. We like to think the best about people. Uh, we like to think positively about human nature. Uh, you know the Good Shepherd Center in downtown Hamilton? It's a terrific organization, by the way. You know it does a ton of good in the city. But, but you know what their motto is? Faith in people. That's what we want to have. We want to have faith in people. Now, this actually has huge implications for how we look at the problems of the world and how we look at the solutions to those problems. If you think that people are basically born good or perhaps even morally neutral, a la kind of John Locke and company, then the answer to the problem of people doing bad things is essentially different forms of reformation. It may be personal reform, teaching a person to make the right choices in order that they do good instead of evil, or it may be societal reform, you know, education reform, or economic reform, or political reform. Or it could be any number of combinations of the two. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad or that they are wrong. In fact, uh, I could actually wax poetic for a long time on different reforms that I think would benefit our society. My point, though, is that according to the Bible, reformation isn't good enough. And the reason isn't, it isn't good enough is because the diagnosis of the problem with human beings doesn't go deep enough, deep enough either. See, this view assumes that people are sinners because they sin. Let me say that again. If we're born basically good, then people are sinners because they sin. It is their actions that lead to their orientation, so to speak. But the Bible's diagnosis is far more serious. The Bible says that we sin because we're sinners, not that we're sinners because we sin. And that's an extremely important distinction. If we're sinners because we commit sin, then through reform, we can learn to stop sinning and therefore no longer be sinners. Aha, see? But if we sin because we're sinners, then no amount of reform can ultimately change us. It may be able to modify our personal behavior. It may even be able to set up a more equitable and just society, but it won't change us fundamentally. The doctrine of total depravity says that the problem is that our natures are corrupt. There's something wrong with our moral DNA. And only a change at the root, at our radix, can finally free us from the inclination toward evil. See, total depravity means that every part of human nature, our, our intellect, our psychology, our emotions, our 
spirituality, even our physical bodies have been corrupted, have been tainted by sin. There's no part of us that has escaped this corruption. Now, we need, we need to be careful here. Uh, this doctrine does not mean that human beings are so bad that they're as bad as they could be. Some, sometimes people take total depravity to mean that human beings are so completely marred by sin that they are as horrible as they possibly could be. But that's not what it means. We are not, in fact, as bad as we could be. You know, Hitler was a terribly wicked person, but he could have been worse. Nor does it mean that we're unable to do any kind of good at all. Again, take Hitler. He was a terribly wicked person, but by all accounts, he loved his mother very much. What total depravity teaches is that you and I may not be Hitler, but we all have the potential to be. Imagine a glass of water. Okay, the water's clean and clear. You can see right through it, right? Now, imagine putting a couple of drops of food coloring in it. We actually did this with our kids as an object lesson when they were younger when we were trying to teach them this principle. So you can try this at home if you want. You, you take that glass of water and you drop a couple of drops of food coloring in it, and that food coloring will eventually make its way through the whole glass. There's no part of the glass of water that is not tainted by the food coloring. But at the same time, you can still see through it. You see through it less clearly, but the water is still water and you can still kind of see through it. It's just tainted. That's total depravity. And that's actually why some people, myself included, we would prefer a term to a different term to describe this doctrine. Uh, some use radical corruption. It's a pretty good way of describing it. It gets at the idea that the root, the radix of the human heart is corrupted by the fall. Others like uh, pervasive depravity to describe the doctrine, to explain how it, how it permeates every part of human nature. But whatever name you give it, the doctrine tells us that no matter how good we think we are, no matter how moral, and upright we even seem to be, our goodness is still tainted by sin and therefore corrupt. Remember the glass of water with the food coloring? It's tainted. It's water, but it's tainted water. This is why it says in Isaiah 40, uh, 64 verse 6, it says, all of us have become unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's not that we can do no good at all, Rather, the good that we do is still corrupt and therefore ultimately unacceptable to God. Now, I said that I wanted to show how the five points of Calvinism are still relevant today. So let me try to do that for a minute. I would argue, actually, that this doctrine of total depravity is very good news in some sense because... It's the great equalizer. See, the beauty of the gospel is that we are saved entirely by grace. It, it has nothing to do with our worth or our ability or our knowledge or our skill or whatever. You don't do anything but receive salvation. You just have to believe the gospel. And anybody, anybody can do that. And I have learned, friends, over the last number of years how incredibly comforting that is. And let me give you a, a a couple concrete examples of why. Uh, 
You know, some of you may be aware of, of a condition called fetal alcohol syndrome. And this is a condition that occurs when a mother drinks heavily while pregnant. And it can be very devastating on the baby. Uh, it can have a lot of effects on the child. Everything from motor skill development to learning problems to poor decision making. And people with FAS, they have lifelong problems. Life, it goes on for their entire lives because it's permanent damage that's been done and it can't be changed. The brain has been permanently altered by uh, the drinking of their mother. And, and people with FAS, they can sometimes make very poor moral decisions because they struggle to consider all the alternatives when they're making personal choices. They have a very strong desire to be like their peers. They can be easily influenced into poor decisions. And they often fail to take into account the consequences of their actions when they make those decisions. And of course, that can happen to anyone. In fact, what I just described probably sounds like a lot of your kids, <laughs> right? Um, but for folks with FAS, this problem often persists throughout their lives because the damage to their brains is permanent. What I'm trying to say is, is that they are unable to reform. They're permanently affected by the decision of another person, and that's not going to change outside of a miracle. Or let me give you another example. Some of you are aware that, you know, child abuse uh, can be pretty extreme and pretty horrific in some cases. There are things that are done to children by parents or other authority figures in their lives that are so damaging uh, that those people, they grow up permanently damaged by their experiences. And they may have, you know, terrible rage issues, for example, into adulthood, or they could get involved in crime or end up abusing substances to deal with their pain and suffering. They may be able to get some change over time, but they'll always struggle as they carry the scars of the abuse that they've experienced. Now, they too can't really reform. But in both those situations, the gospel offers extraordinary hope, unparalleled hope. See, the only thing that can save us is God's grace. We're all, every single one of us, so corrupted by sin that there's nothing that we can do to reform ourselves enough for God. And so people who have had these experiences, they have FAS or they've, they've gone through horrible trauma that has affected them profoundly deeply, they don't have to straighten out or smarten up to be accepted by Jesus. All they have to do is believe all they have to do is trust. And yeah, they may still make bad decisions going forward. They may still carry the wounds of that childhood trauma, but those things will not, those things cannot determine their identity or their destiny. Rather, God does. See, the doctrine of total depravity says that what we don't need is another self-help book is better education, is better systems of government and uh, a social safety net to give us the best 
uh, chance at life that we could have. And again, those things are all good. I believe that's important for us to work towards those kind of change changes. But fundamentally, each and every individual, what we need is a change of heart. And that's what the gospel offers. Why do you think becoming a Christian is described as being born again because it's at the root, at our radix, that the Holy Spirit makes the change? That's the doctrine of total depravity, friends. We're going to dig a little deeper into it again next time. There's some more aspects to it that we need to unpack together, and I look forward to doing that with you. But for now, I want to say, hey, have a great week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care.